All right, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be all over the place today. Um, we're talking about the cross. Last week we talked about the suffering servant, um, substitutionary atonement, how Jesus takes our place on the cross. We're going to look at the specific details of the punishment that brought us peace. Right? So we're going to march with Jesus uh, to a place called the skull, and we're going to spend some time looking at the cross today. Now, I bring that up, and, and this is the most pivotal event in history, the cross of Christ. And yet sometimes I feel like it's like a homecoming parade at Holmes High School. And, and this is what I mean. Every year, um, football season, there will be all of these trucks and floats, and we'll have this parade. And listen, I love parades because... In a parade, you know you're going to get candy. Now, I have an unfair advantage on a lot of people. I have three girls, which means three bags of candy full. As the parade comes, the cheerleaders come, boom, tons of gum. Uh, the football team, basketball team comes, man, more Snickers and Twix. And, and there's all these parades and floats and homecoming queen and king and all these cars pass with all the clubs, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and they pass... And they go by, the parade's over, we go home, and life's not changed, but it happens once a year. The homecoming parade. Easter's the same way. Every year we come to the cross, we see the cross, and then we go home. But I'm afraid many times we are left unchanged if we don't apply the cross to our lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look back at what Christ did on the cross we're going to apply how does that affect how we live now, and then we're going to look forward. So we're doing something called the Lord's Supper, and I know some of you have no idea what that is. Um, what happens is you get a cup and you get a piece of bread, and Jesus is sitting with his boys before he goes to the cross to die, and he says, hey, this meal we're going to celebrate again, but we won't do it again until we are in the kingdom of God. And so he's pushing them forward. Hey, this blood or this cup represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you. And this bread represents the body that's going to be laid down for you. I want you to drink and eat. And as you do, I want you to remember what I've done, looking forward to doing this again with me in my presence. So with that said, we've got a lot of work to do. Any of you guys recognize this? Some of you will. This is a hymnal. In it, you've got a bunch of songs. Right? And what happens is if you, you grew up in church, and still some churches, they'll be in the back of the pew. Right? You, you pull it out, the guy up front will say, hey, turn the hymn number, blah, blah, blah. You turn to that hymn number. Right? This gives me flashbacks of nightmares. Back in the day, I tried to lead a church. We had 20 people um, trying to sing a song, and I was leading the music. Brutal. Brutal. I had to fire myself. That's how bad it got. But in here, hymn after hymn after hymn talks about the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ. And some of you think, ah, oh, that's gross. And some of you think, man, that's brutal. Why? This is why. The cross changes everything. So you have nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he asked some questions. What can wash away my sin? Right? All the garbage in my life, what can take care of that? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Right? You're missing out. You don't have peace in your heart. There's no joy in your life. And you're trying everything to fill that. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, right? I can't make enough good deeds to pay for my bad deeds. 
I've messed up. I've missed the mark. What can? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Then you have the hymn, the old rugged cross. Right? And it says, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And it's this idea that as we take up our crosses, one day we'll lay it down and receive the crown of life that Jesus promises to all those who follow him. And it's just, it's him after him after him. Another hymn called At the Cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. And now I bring that up. This is why. Because some of you are here, and you do not see the light of the glory of Christ. But in the cross, maybe today you receive your sight. Maybe today you're dead in your sin, but you see the cross of Christ, and today you have new life. That's the goal. My goal is that as we go through and we look at the cross, we don't leave it in the past, but we apply it today so it changes our future. You're not here this morning by accident. Now, with that said, I understand time, and I understand pace, and we're looking at 12 chapters all in one, and that's the first point. That's the first point, right? So when you look back at the cross, what you see is it starts on Thursday night and ends, um, you, you can go Sunday morning. And we're really looking at, in less than 24 hours, Jesus is arrested and executed. And that's going to be our focus for the first few moments looking back. But this is what we're covering. Matthew 26, chapters 26 to 28, Mark 14 to 16, Luke 22 to 24, and then John 18 to 20. And now a lot of these accounts, the, the gospel writers are telling us about the life of Jesus. They cover the same event. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to look in order what happens through the day and night. So it happens there at the garden. Right? Jesus is praying with his boys. And, and I want us to see a couple of things. Number one, I want us to see the price that Jesus is about to pay. And in Mark 10, 45, it says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. That is a steep price. So for you and I to have life, to have forgiveness, Jesus has to lay his down. That is the price. But I also want you to see that he did so Willingly in John 10 12, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Right now, this is very, very important because in a minute we're going to look at this account of Christ, and I'll tell you, it's brutal. Right? Crucifixion is graphic. And I want you to see at no point in time is Jesus ever not in control. And so he tells that his guys that he's with, hey, I'm laying my life down. I could stop it in a second, but I'm laying my life. As a matter of fact, he's in the garden. These guys come up to arrest him, and, and Peter gets excited. Um, he gets nervous. These guys are trying to put their hands on Jesus, so he takes his sword out, cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus looks at Peter. He's like, hey, man, I don't need your help. He bends down, picks up the dude's ear, puts it back on his head, and heals him. And he's like, I could wipe out all of Rome in two words. I don't need anybody's help. I'm laying my life down. And so I want us to understand Jesus doesn't have to do this, but he wants to because there's a greater purpose. That's very, very important. He is not a reluctant 
lover. He is going to the cross because he wants to lay his life down so that he can ransom a people to himself, buy back a people for himself because you and I are lost and separated from God. Jesus says, I'm coming for you. So he willingly lays his life down. And then I want you to see it was only Jesus that could pay the price. You can lay your life down, but it won't save my life and it won't save anybody else's life because all of us have sin. And so in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then uh, what I did, I just went through chronologically the outline of the last few hours of Jesus. And this guy, his name's Rick Gamachi. Uh, he does a, a good job, I think, writing down, um, painting a picture with his words, how this thing went down. So I'm going to read this. I want you to listen. I want you to focus on the words. I want you to see what Christ has gone through so that maybe through seeing you can believe that Jesus is the one who stands in the gap for you. He can be your mediator between you and God. Don't let this be something that happened a long time ago. Apply it today. All right? Let's do work. Jesus is bowed and bloody. 110 pounds of lumber is strapped across his shoulders. The weight of the rough wood proves too much as it grinds against the lacerations left by the Roman scourging. Pain explodes like light in Jesus' brain and he crumples under the beam. When he comes to, Jesus feels somehow weightless and he realizes that the wooden beam has been cut from his back. Another man is carrying it now, whose face he cannot see, but he does see the face of another. Mercifully, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, bends and takes Jesus under the arm, lifts him gently to his feet. Again, Jesus looks up and holds the soldier captive in his gaze. The victim's eyes do not pierce the soldier with hatred that he expects to see. Instead, he finds love in those eyes. Love's mingled with pain, yes, brokenhearted love, but nonetheless, love. And not a love excited by a mere act of kindness. This love preceded the moment. This love preceded his existence. This love preceded the existence of the world. Somehow the soldier knows that these are the eyes of eternal love. Jesus holds the soldier's gaze as long as he can, but the blood that dripped off the ends of his hair to the ground when he was bent low under the cross now drops into his eyes. The blood mixed with sweat stings and Jesus blinks. By this time Friday, Jesus is familiar with that sting. But this was a new sensation on Thursday night in the garden. Thursday night, think late. There are no lights. They go to this garden to pray as a group. There in the garden, he walked with his friends singing hymns and speaking quietly. They passed through the city gate and walked up the hill of Gethsemane through the olive trees. But there were only 11 friends with Jesus now, not 12. One of the 12 chosen proved not to be a friend at all. Eleven remained, but there soon would be none. Not one friend would stay. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. One was so terrified out of the garden, he ran away naked. And what happens? This mob comes to arrest Jesus. They grab his followers. This guy was so scared, he'd rather leave his clothes behind than be caught with this mob. It's a terrifying night. Jesus fell on his face in prayer and he tasted the dirt as he fought for eternal destinies of the eleven sleeping a stone's throw away. Let the cup pass, he cried, Father, if possible, let the cup pass. The father gazed lovingly at his son and stared back knowingly. Your will be done, Father, whispered the son. 
And the father held out the cup, and Jesus looked in. What he saw there flung him into throes of agony. He pressed his forehead deep into the dirt, which softened into mud and mingled with his tears. Jesus felt several small explosions of pain underneath his skin and on his face. His tiny capillaries in the sweat glands burst under the stress, and blood flowed through the pores and dropped into his eyes, and it stung. Just then, through blurry eyes, Jesus saw a line of torches slithering like a snake up the hill to the garden. The mob arrived. Judas kissed. Friends fled. Soldiers arrested. And Jesus' world became a swirl of torment and mockery. His trial was a sham as liars lied and mockers mocked. God claimed to be God and it was called blasphemy. And the face that Moses longed to see, the face that was forbidden to see, was slapped and spit on. More blood in the eyes, more stinging. It was an amazing thing. There's an account. Jesus is before the high priest. Right, the religious leader of the day. And the religious leader is like, hey, are you this or are you this or are you this? And Jesus is like, hey, I'm not speaking in private. You've heard me teach in the synagogue and in the streets. And the guy was offended by how Jesus answered the high priest, so he struck him. Can you imagine that? This dude was so worried about how God talked to the high priest that he smacked God in the face. I don't know how you would react in that moment. But Jesus does not respond. He remains silent. The governor of Judea was up early this cold, gray, wet Friday morning. The city still slept, and the priests and the soldiers led Jesus to the palace of Pontius Pilate. But soon, the priests would have a sympathetic crowd as news of Jesus' arrest passed from house to house. They leveled their charges. This man forbids us to pay tribute to Caesar, and he calls himself a king. Trumped up charges that were not True. Pilate stared intently at Jesus. He questioned him and found no guilt. Neither did King Herod. So Pilate offered to release Jesus to the swelling crowd, but they chose the freedom of a murderer, Barabbas, instead. Then, what should I do with Jesus? Pilate shouted to the crowd. The mob thundered back, crucify him, crucify him. And their voices prevailed. Pilate washed his hands and delivered the innocent one to death. Next, Jesus was stripped and his hands were tied above uh, his head to a post. Um, this is what's called a scourging. This is brutal. There is nothing co in comparison to it today like it was 2,000 years ago. A large Roman legionnaire stepped forward, grasping a short whip. Several heavy leather lashes hung off the handle, weighed down by small pieces of bone and metal. The muscles of the legionnaire's back and arms bulged as he brought down the whip with full force again and again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. The bruises were eventually broken up by the endless blows. The lashes cut through the skin and then cut through deeper into the muscles. From behind, Jesus no longer looked like a human. His skin hung in long, bloody ribbons of tissue. Fearing they had gone too far and killed Jesus before it was time, the soldiers cut him loose, and he fell unconscious as a heap at their feet. As Jesus came to, he was forced to stand. A purple robe, not his own now, was wrapped around him, and it clung to his open wounds. They made him hold a stick, a mock scepter. And now the king of the Jews needed a crown. One of the Romans picked up a thorn branch from a pile of firewood and braided into a circle. Never did thorns compose so rich a crown or so painful of a crown. Another soldier took the scepter from the hand of the king of kings and beat the crown into his skull. Bloody sweat blinded him, and his stinging eyes momentarily took his mind off the pain in his back. Now Jesus is dressed in his own clothes, and the soldier is moving Jesus along behind the man carrying the cross. 
Then Jesus walks beyond the city gates. It's 9 o'clock in the morning this Friday. Through the pain of the walk, Jesus glances up and sees a hill called Golgotha. It's the skull. The place where people go to die. At the top, he sees several posts fixed in the ground. Three of those poles stand, ready to receive their crossbeam and tattered body of Jesus and the two criminals carrying the crosses behind him. At the top of the hill, the merciful centurion hands a cup to Jesus. Jesus sniffs the liquid. It's wine mixed with myrrh, a mild narcotic to dull the pain. But Jesus is meant to feel the pain, so he hands the cup back. This is not the cup of the Father. Soldier strips Jesus. Again, his back is set on fire. His skin tears away from the cloth. Jesus now lays naked in the dirt, and the man carrying the cross puts it by Jesus' head. This time he sees his face. It's Simon of Cyrene. Jesus knows him by name before there was time. The beam becomes a pillow now. Two men take hold of his hands. The soldier on his left yanks his arm as far as it will go, but the soldier on the right is a little gentler. Jesus turns to him. It's the merciful centurion again. He picks up a cold spike and places it to Jesus' wrist. Then he picks up the hammer. Their eyes meet. Eternal love shines forth again. And the centurion is undone. He looks away and lifts the hammer. Jesus is lifted on the crossbeam to the post. It, he sags only, held by spikes in his wrist. The pain shoots through those nerves and explodes in his skull as the crossbeam is set in place. His left foot is now pressed against his right foot, and both feet are extended down, toes down. The spike is driven through the arch of the feet. His knees are bent. Jesus immediately pushes him up to relieve the pain of his outstretched arms. He places his full weight on the spikes in his feet, and they tear through the nerves. Splinters from the post is lacerated back. This is searing agony. Quickly, waves of cramps overtake him, deep throbbing pains from his head to his toes. He's no longer able to push himself up. His knees buckle. He's hearing now, or he's hanging now by his arms. Jesus can inhale, but exhaling has become difficult. His compressed heart is struggling to pump blood to his torn tissue. He fights to raise himself in order to breathe and in order to speak. He looks down at the soldiers now gambling for his clothes. He pushes himself up through the violent pain to pray aloud, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Then he sags back into silence, but the crowd is not silent. Though he can barely hear their taunts through his pain, they yell, He saved others, let him save himself. If you're the Christ, come down off the cross. Save yourself, King of the Jews. Jesus speaks life for one of the criminals hung next to him. He also takes care of his mother. Then he sags back into silence, back into countless hours of limitless pain. Then he looks up to the father and his father looks back, but Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. From noon to three o'clock, the sun has stopped shining. The father speaks, son of man, you Take their sin. You are self-sufficient and self-righteous. You are greedy. You are lazy. You're a glutton. You slander. You gossip. You're a liar. You're conceited. You're ungrateful. You're an adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You love pornography. You fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange the truth for a lie. You uh, prayed around in passions that are 
forbidden. With all your heart you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor, deal slaves, ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You're lukewarm, easily enticed by the world. You covet and you can't have, so you murder. You're filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin and are too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak. You have a razor tongue that lashes out and cuts people with criticism and judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You're a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're anxious. You're a coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're a selfish wife. You're a lazy and disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of the love for my church. You're a pimp, a drug dealer. You practice witchcraft. You worship demons. And the list of your sins goes on and on and on and on. And I hate these things. I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink this cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with the white-hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one man hanging on the cross. The Father can no longer look at His beloved Son his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, he looks away. So Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus whispers, I'm thirsty, and he sags. The merciful soldier soaks a sponge and sour wine lifts it to the lips of Jesus. Jesus has pushed himself up again and cries, it is finished, and it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus and he drank the cup of God's wrath. And that cup is dry. It's 3 o'clock Friday afternoon and Jesus finds one more surge of strength. He presses his torn feet against the spike, straightens his legs, and with one last gasp cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and he dies. The merciful soldier sees Jesus' body fall far forward and his head drop low. He thrusts a spear up behind Jesus' ribs, one more piercing for our transgression, and water and blood flow from his broken heart. In that moment, mountains shake and rocks split, veils tear and tombs open. And the merciful centurion looks up at the lifeless body of Jesus and is filled with awe. He drops to his knees and declares, truly, this man is the Son of God. Mission accomplished. Sacrifice accepted. That is the brutal reality of the crucifixion of Christ. And I don't want us to be left unmoved. That display of love should be sung about forever and ever and ever, and it will be. And so I, I was looking, and, and there's this guy, and, and now listen, none of us have heard of his name, or most of us haven't. Count Zizendorf, right? Never heard of this dude. But as I was reading about, uh, the, there's a Moravian church movement in the 1700s where all of these guys got together, and, and they wanted to pray and send out missionaries because there were a lot of people that didn't know Jesus. 
And so they got together, and there was about 300. They got together, and they said, you know what? We need to pray around the clock for God to move and send out missionaries. And so they started to pray, and they said, you know what? We'll sign up an hour at a time, uh, but we've got to cover the clock 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they did this. Somebody had prayed for an hour each day, seven days a week. For a hundred years, the chain was unbroken. And from this little group, this Moravian movement, they sent out over 300 missionaries to Greenland, to the West Indies, to North America. Like they were impacting the globe for Christ. And you know what ignited the movement? This dude named Zizendorf. He was a count. He was born in nobility. He had a lot of money. He's going around. And he comes to this museum, and there's this painting here um, of Jesus and the thorns of the blood dripping down his face. And at the bottom, there was a, a quote, this is what I've done for you. How are you living now? You see, and he understood that when you look at what Christ has done, you can't remain neutral. You'll either ignore it or it will radically change your life. And so as a result of a painting of a glimpse of the suffering of Jesus, his life was changed and it led to a movement. That's my prayer for this place. That's why we look at the cross. Understand this, you are loved beyond, you can, beyond your imagination. Jesus makes that clear with the cross. Didn't have to do any of it, but he lays his life down. For you, don't think of somebody else for you to glorify the Father in obedience to the cup that he had to drink. So what does that mean now, living now? Luke 8.23 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This gives us perspective. This gives us perspective. I was talking to, to Julianne, and, and I want to be careful because Easter should be a celebration, but if we leave it with Easter eggs and Easter bunnies, we're missing the point. And so the challenge for me is how do I get something so gruesome as the cross to a first grader like Camden, my daughter, or a third grader like Bailey. And so I've got to figure out ways. Easter's got to be more than, hey, here's some Easter eggs. And so I, I want to make sure, how, what does it look like to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Denying self. Well, here's the thing. Number one, what you see is if you're pursuing comfort, you cannot pursue Jesus. If your goal is luxury now, you'll miss it for eternity. You might get it for a few years. But soon you'll stand before God and you will miss it. You have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Um, and I, I think with the, the picture that we just saw, that is a gruesome picture. It is a painful experience. The Christian life is not easy. If you come to Jesus for what you can get out of Him, you'll never get Jesus. That's what a lot of people do. I remember Jesus feeds the crowds, right? There's 5,000 people show up and they're starved, they're hungry. And so Jesus, with some fish and some bread, fills them until they're satisfied. And then more people want to follow so they can have their bellies filled. And then he started talking crazy. Hey, if you're going to follow me, you better leave mom and dad behind. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do that. And then people left him once they saw the cost. So when you see this, deny yourself and take up your cross daily, that is a painful experience. And some of you are missing Jesus because you're pursuing comfort instead of pursuing a cross. 
That's how you live now in light of the cross of Christ. If Jesus gave up his throne in heaven to be born here, live, and die that way, I can take up my cross for the next 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Because one day I'm trading it in for a crown. Then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are a new creation in Christ. And it talks about how because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his death, we can live for him. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's how the cross is applied for us today. Jesus died, so you don't live for yourself anymore, you live for him. And then in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So maybe some of you for the first time see the light of the cross. Have you ever called on God to save you? This is why Jesus went to the cross. Following him is not an easy life, but it's worth it. But you got to lose everything. You got to deny yourself, you got to take up your cross, and you got to follow him. And I think some of you today need to make that decision. And you don't have to talk to somebody. You have to call out on Christ. And so it could look something like this. Father, I'm a, I've messed up, but I trust Jesus to save me. What he did on the cross saved me. And here's the awesome news. God says that whoever calls on the name of Christ will be saved. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to trust that Jesus will save me. I'm going to follow him as Lord. That is salvation. And you can have it. You want to know why? That's what Jesus purchased on the cross. So let's look forward. Let's look forward. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to close with this text. In Revelation chapter 5, check this out. Verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Um, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We're going to look at the empty tomb in two weeks, but he doesn't stay in the grave. Like he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And when he stands up, he's gathering his church, his people, to himself. Check out this text. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is a beautiful picture of the reality that is coming. This is what Jesus has purchased. And one day we will worship Him forever in a place the Bible calls heaven. So we keep reading. Go to verse 11 of chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So you remember that picture of the suffering servant? The Lamb that was led to the slaughter and remained silent? The one who was crushed for our sin? The punishment that brought us peace upon him, that's the lamb they're talking about. It's the same lamb that is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. That is a beautiful picture. Jesus doesn't stay on the cross. He doesn't stay in the tomb. He is the risen Lord who we will worship forever and ever and ever. And we have a, a small little verse in Matthew. And this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's talking to his disciples and they're doing something called the Passover. Um, any of you guys know Old Testament? Old Testament, the Passover lamb, um, the, the Jews would come over to celebrate when they were delivered out of slavery, out of Egypt. And the last plague that they needed to be delivered from was the death angel coming. And the death angel would come and the firstborn would be put to death of anyone who didn't have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And so they're celebrating that on Thursday night before they go to garden, before Jesus is arrested. That's what they're celebrating. And then Jesus says, hey, you know what? This was a Passover I was looking forward to, but there's something new. And he institutes what's called the Lord's Supper. And so I want to read just a couple of things um, as we move into the Lord's Supper. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now, if you're the disciples at this point, you're wondering, what is Jesus talking about? This doesn't make sense. Jesus, you're healthy. I don't see any scratches on you. They don't see the cross that is coming. Jesus does. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. That's a promise to all of us. So as we take the cup and as we break the bread, what this is is we're looking back at what Christ has done. And we should give thanks. But that should also motivate us to worship Him today and follow Him, taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Him. But then we look forward to the day where one day we'll be with Him. There won't be any more crosses to bear, just crowns to lay down. In a place where there is no more weeping, there is no more sickness, there is no more death, it is perfection and enjoyment to the fullest will be in the presence of God. How does that happen? Through the cross of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll pass the, the bread and the drinks around. Um, we'll take the Lord's Supper, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. Father, there are so many people in the room from so many different backgrounds. Some have known about the cross since, uh, since they were very young. And so, Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit... Uh, convicts them and shows them anew of the power of the cross, that it is fresh in their hearts and their minds, that it changes how they live the rest of their lives. And then, Father, a lot in the room, this is the first time they've heard of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that you move in their hearts so that they can turn to you for salvation, for that is why Jesus came to die to rescue a people for himself. And so I pray that they see the light of the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.